Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who wants to enjoy growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan and I'm Julia and together we're two good gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. Now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode four, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Welcome back to Two Good Gardeners. We've reached episode four, which apparently means we've made it as podcasters. <laughs> a new title to, to add to us, Dan. And that's right, a big thank you to everyone for downloading the first three episodes and giving us lots of feedback. We are very grateful. In this fortnight's episode, Julia and I will be talking tomatoes, chatting about compost, getting to grips with ginger and waxing lyrical about wallflowers. We'll be looking forward to an action-packed coronation weekend and the crowning of one of the nation's most celebrated garden makers. Julia, you've actually visited King Charles's garden at Highgrove, haven't you? I have. It makes it sound as if I'm a very important person and I was invited. But actually, I was part of a group tour. I don't know if you listeners know, but you can't just pitch up and pay and go and visit it. So there are certain opening times and you have to go with a group and you have to have your credentials checked, etc, etc. I think I even submitted my passport. But yeah, it was two years ago and it was in the summer and it, it was great to go and see it. I mean, I've seen so many photographs. Andrew Lawson has done some beautiful photographs and books of Highgrove. And, and it was great. It was just a shame that we were there after the wildflower season. But there's an awful lot to see. And obviously, I explored the kitchen garden. It was walled. And oh, there were lots of lovely things. And there's even a, a huge, huge magnolia that pretty much covers the whole of the house. Not that you can go in and see it, but you can admire that from afar. So if you do get the chance, I would highly recommend it. That sounds brilliant. What else have you been up to down in East Sussex? Oh, I've been busy, Dan. I think I mentioned before that I was going to an antiques fair to get some props for the Chelsea Flower Show. I'm helping Alatex build a stand this year. And the theme is self-sufficiency and how a greenhouse can help reduce carbon footprint and help you grow your own food all year round. So I've been looking for bits and bobs and Nellie at uh, HQ has been growing all her plants. It's been amazing how much she's grown, actually. And I've managed to find some interesting bits and bobs to help well, hopefully bring it all together, including a rather lovely rhubarb forcer. But Dan, enough of me. I know you've had your hands full with sales all around the country or so it seems. So where have you been and what have you been up to? <laughs> I have. Plant fair season is in full swing, although not helped by uh, the wet weather recently. Um, since the last episode, I've been among the magnolias at Great Comp near Seven Oaks. I've sheltered literally beneath the ramparts at Arundel Castle, and I've enjoyed the grounds of a medieval hall house near Tenterden. Uh, it's just been really lovely to get out and about, meeting people, getting their feedback, being immersed in the spring, and uh, I'm lucky to have got away without having trench foot, but uh, I do have a bit of <laughs> colour on my face now, so that's something. 
I've picked up some really great plants, I have to say, including a variegated daylily called Quanzhou. I've bought it mainly for the foliage because the flowers are just the sort of standard orange double daylily coloured. I've got a fascinating grass called waterfall millet. Its Latin name is Phanosperma globosa, which sounds more like a tumour or a medical condition than a plant, but uh, it's promising to grow and I think it likes shade so I'm hoping that it will grow well in one of my two courtyards and then for my other half I've bought a little chili plant it's called tangerine dream I think you would really love it it's not a hot fiery one but it produces round orange chilies that are big enough to stuff oh that sounds fascinating and I bet you didn't know that you could actually eat daylilies too or did you know that I have heard that. I've heard so daylilies are in that group of things you could eat, but I'm not sure you'd want to, like hostas <laughs> and magnolia flowers. I know you've given that a go. I have, and I've had a daylily. Yes. Well, when it does flower, I shall. Um, I shall. I shall give it a go. I promise. <laughs> Good. I look forward to it. <laughs> Um, But everything's so far behind, isn't it? I mean, I've been very lucky. I've been away for four days in the sunshine. We actually had a very short break to Morocco where it was warm, sunny and full of colour. Something we're missing here. And I returned hoping to see all the tulips in bloom and many more asparagus spears popping up. But to be honest, it'd be hard to spot the difference before I left. Thank you to my youngest daughter, Bella, for watering my greenhouse. Um, And the good news about that is the mouse is no more. One success. Oh, what happened to the mouse? Are we allowed to ask? Well, you can. It's rather strange, actually. So I had nothing to do with it other than there was a strange smell about a week or so ago, but I just ignored it. And uh, I lifted a very tall, it's like a long tom terracotta pot, and I found a rather sort of skeletal mouse in there. So obviously had hopped into the pot looking for something and couldn't get out. Ah, maybe it had fallen through the hole in the top. An impromptu mouse trap. Whoever would have thought of that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, the the seedlings are looking good. (laughs) Brilliant, yes, much the better for the lack of mouse. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, so we usually, every fortnight, address a hot topic, and this week it's going to be all about compost. And according to Business Waste, 97% of us don't attempt to make any compost, either in our own garden or by having compostable waste collected by the council. What's more, the RHS have found that only a third of gardeners make their own compost despite it being a free, easy and sustainable alternative to shop-bought products. I am hugely surprised by those figures. Are you, Dan? Uh, Well, yes and no. I mean, it is a little bit scary to think, you know, how few of us make an effort to compost things, but I do kind of get it. I've personally always considered composting to be an integral part of gardening, you know, part of the cycle of what we do, not least Mm. because it's the easiest way to get rid of all of the leaves, prunings, grass clippings and weeds that we end up collecting up. But you do have to have space to do it. And before I had an allotment and just had two little courtyard gardens that were very designed, I I had no space at all to compost anything. And although I knew how to do it, um, it was, you know, practically very, very difficult to do. And, And there is some technique and method involved to make a really rich, beautifully crumbly compost. And I know 
probably a lot of uh, famous gardeners would say, well, you know, it's, it's very easy, everybody can do it. But there is a little bit more to it than that. And I suspect some people feel that it's a bit beyond them and much easier to buy compost in sacks from the garden centre. Unfortunately, the issue with that is that it's it's expensive. If you use as much compost as I do, that's a very expensive way to get it. Uh, it creates a lot of packaging waste, so I can't tell you how many uh, compost sacks I have, although I do make the best use of them that I can. And, you know, the more affordable composts often contain peat at the moment. So if you, you have to pay you know, sometimes twice as much to get a peat-free compost. So, yes, I do understand why some people don't make their own compost, but I think, you know, we would like to encourage more people to do it, wouldn't we? Well, we would. And and it's not that difficult, but you're right. You do have to apportion a space or a bin or something. I'll come on to that a little bit later. But I, I agree with you. So peat-free is the way we should be going forward. And it is expensive. And, and I tried to find one the other day. Or I bought one, actually. But it was £18. I mean, that is a lot wow. of money. And you seriously have to consider spending that for the seedlings. Yes. So I, I we have space here, so we're lucky. And I've got three compost bays. One for grass... Uh, one for leaves and one for a whole mix of everything else so the cuttings and cardboard and things like that I used to have an even handier one by the veg patch and it was fantastic for when I would harvest my crops I'd top and tail I'd get rid of all the debris in the garden without having to bring that trail of mud and water and everything through to the kitchen it actually became a, a nest for more mice and I was finding that I always had a mouse problem in the greenhouse because it was warm and a very welcoming home for them to live in and it wasn't far from them to sort of run back and forth to. So we got rid of that um, and I must admit, I know I've had the odd mouse but it's been nothing like before. So um, I just want to clarify as well that we're talking about compost but when I sow my seeds I'd never use my own compost. It's never really nutritious enough. I think if you're going to sow seeds compost is always best to be bought because it's it gives you that kickstart. It's whacked full of everything isn't it? It is and also bought compost has been sterilised so you don't get any weed seeds or things that you might do if you used compost from a compost heap which really helps if you don't know what the seedlings that are coming up are going to look like because what you could be growing is a whole tray of weed seeds so yes yeah, sterilized compost is great for sowing seeds yeah that's good so so what do you do now then dan so i do a bit of both i i make some of my own compost and i buy compost most of my garden's planted in pots which i change two or three times a year to stop pests and things building up in the soil so I couldn't possibly make enough compost on my allotment for that so I do have to buy some in. This is my first year of honestly going peat free which is turning out to be a lot harder and more expensive than I anticipated. My local mm -hmm. garden centre that I'm good pals with are very kind and they often give me sacks of compost to try out to give them my feedback and I have to say that some of the peat-free ones that they've given me have turned out to be sort of more like loft insulation or, or duvet filling than, than <laughs> compost. And I, I struggle with that in my garden where I need a slightly uh, heavier soil, um, both to keep the water in and also to stop the pots from toppling over. 
And I find that just instinctively when you put your hands in compost, you know if it's right or not. That's a not very helpful thing to say to a novice gardener. But if you get your hands in there, if you, you can feel the substance of it. If it's very, very fluffy and light, which I find a lot of the uh, peat-free composts yep. are, then you instantly know that that's going to be hard work to keep moist. And that actually it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't really have the substance and the nutrition for, for plants to grow. And and sometimes they're also very coarse, which I think is also difficult for seed sowing. Because if you've got very fine seeds, it's hard to create a firm surface for them to land on. And you end up with some going down in between. And so I have that mixture. I tend to find that the compost that I make on my allotment is quite coarse. It's sort of more um, more a mulch than a compost. Really good for improving the soil structure because we've got chalk here which is quite a close textured soil so all of that organic matter really helps to bulk it up and give it a bit of air in between but I certainly don't make compost that's good enough for seed sowing or even growing younger plants on so I would I would buy that in but I'm gradually finding my way and and mixing some different compost together to create a texture that agrees with me my main issue, yep. I think, with making my own compost is that I generate too much dry material and I don't have enough green material and you really need that mix. Um, and because my compost bins have got closed sides, it's not easy for me to mix it up as I should. So I tend to just leave it and let it let it break down naturally, which takes a lot longer than if you did it properly. Yes, that's true. So if you do it properly, it takes about nine months. But I agree, going back to the peat-free, it dries out far too quickly and it is lumpy and there are bits of plastic in the ones I've had. But the other thing, if anyone is listening, what I would love is I would love to go to a garden centre and there to be the row of compost bags and a rather like a sniff and tell, but a try and squeeze because I go along looking for little holes and I poke my finger and try and get a little bit and sort of, you know, rub it between my fingers because I have no idea what I'm buying. And more often than not, I get home and I think, what a waste of money. That's you then, is it? Is it that? Are you, are you the one that's responsible for all the little holes in the sacks of compost <laughs> at the garden centre? So when I put them in my boot <laughs> and it all comes out through the little holes... I know Julia Parker has been there prodding around. Guilty. <laughs> okay, so it's important to have a good mix of wet and dry, which is what you said. Many different ingredients help make a nutritious, crumbly compost. And as we said earlier, if you're worried about space and time, fear not, because all you need is a bucket or a bin, preferably plastic, as it retains the heat and helps the ingredients break down faster. You just need to make a few holes in the base and I would suggest keeping it outside because there's always a little bit of liquid with half the things that you can throw in um, that would seep out. And also if you make some holes, liquid comes out and maybe little helpful bugs and worms might find their way in to help break things down. Every time you add more waste, it's always a good idea to give a little stir or a little mix because as you do that, that adds in the extra air that would be helpful to um, add to the rotting process. And composting at home is also a really good way to use up all that card 
with the packaging that comes from Amazon and places like that because let's face it there's an awful lot of cardboard that comes through and I actually add shredded paper too it's a good way of getting rid of that and just to clarify that compost is a mix of green and brown waste and green waste is basically plant materials so veg peelings old soil grass dead flowers and brown waste is things like cardboard egg boxes washed eggshells raw not cooked ones coffee tea wood ash uh, straw and then things that you wouldn't add um, are meat and dairy. And also I tell people if they want to put tea leaves on or tea bags, it's a really good idea to, to compost those. But just make sure that those tea bags don't contain plastic because some of those little bags do. So read the packet first. And there are other things like you can't put too much citrus on. Um, sort of pet poo would be a bad idea. And I personally never add potato peelings. They become really pesky and it is possible for potatoes to grow from a peeling with a bit of potato attached. And I just don't want pesky potatoes <laughs> popping up all over the compost. And they obviously would be edible. I just don't really fancy them. Um, so yes, and uh, you don't want to put anything harmful, um, sort of maybe a, a fertilizer or pathogens or anything poisonous or anything to attract our unfriendly rat that Dan has and my and my mice. Um, and you wouldn't put weeds, um, conifers. Uh, yeah, so you'd be careful. You could put conifers in, but be careful not to put too much of everything. It's that old rule, moderation. Yes, it absolutely is. I mean, weeds that are annual weeds are okay, uh, generally speaking, because the heat should be enough. The heat of the composting process should be enough to kill the seeds. The ones you really want to avoid putting on are anything that's a perennial weed. So you want to avoid bindweed or ground elder or cooch grass or anything like that going in the compost heat because it's very unlikely to be um, killed off. As you know, I'm a great fan of a book, Julia, and I just pulled a couple out of my <laughs> library, my extensive library. And I'm a great fan of a bargain book as well. So I would always say to people, first place to look is sort of charity bookshop, good Oxfam bookshop. They always have great selection of gardening books or on That's eBay. And they, both of these have come from there. But I've got um, a book called Composting here. That's by Bob Flowerdew. Oh, that is yes. excellent. Very, very uh, practical and down to the earth, as you would expect from Bob Flowerdew. And another one that I like, uh, mainly because it's got pictures in it, which I think is always helpful, which is How to Make and Use Compost, The Ultimate Guide by Nikki Scott. So if anybody wants to know more about composting, then I would highly recommend getting hold of one of these because it's got a lot more information than we can possibly hope to cover and it will answer all your little questions. There was something I was going to say because you mentioned toxic things and a problem that has started occurring uh, quite a lot with compost that's come from some brands and some council recycling sites is that weeds that have been sprayed with weed killer have been composted and added to the compost and that has caused people's plants to develop funny distortions and colours and disfigurements because basically the compost contains weed killer. I've heard some real horror stories about this and it, it isn't just homemade compost, it is actually some branded compost. So do buy the best quality compost you can and if you do see anything like that happening then I think it's important to feed that back 
to the originator of the compost so that they know. But yes, all great advice. And uh, I think if we all try and compost a little bit, we may, may not be able to compost everything that we produce, but if we all do a little bit, it will really help to reduce the amount of material going into landfill, as well as boosting the health of our gardens. Yes, exactly. Well said, Dan. And so, yeah, and now you have can't get out of it because you all you need is a little bucket or a little bin hopefully <laughs> uh, every episode I show an easy project and Dan shares his product of the fortnight and this time I'm going to talk about growing ginger from a root and guess what it's thrifty and now it's the perfect time to get going so I'm going to talk to you about how to do that and Dan I don't know whether you've done this before but maybe you might have some questions at the end so ginger is a delicious and versatile spice used in many dishes but not many people will know that it is actually something you can grow at home and very easily it's not only fun but it's rewarding too and it can save you money in the long run we love that Fresh ginger can be expensive if you want to buy a lot of it, but by growing your own, you could possibly have a steady supply. So um, I bought and I buy from my local supermarket a piece of ginger. You have normally in a basket to choose from in, in all the supermarkets, so you can sort of have a rummage around and find a nice piece. You want a nice fat plump plump piece and um, one with little eyes a little bit in the way that we talked about potatoes you look for eyes some people soak their ginger root overnight before planting but I don't can't see the point I, life's too short so with that root I get some compost and I just place it in one of my favorite plastic fruit punnets because I as you know I use them as containers another thrifty idea some good potting mix that drains well not one that dries out and then I just bury the ginger but I leave the top of it exposed I don't really know why I do that but I don't like it to be too buried because I think it could damp off and it could rot um, and I place it flat as well so there's quite a large surface area for the water to sit on if it was buried too deep and the eyes should be facing upwards and you keep this warm so warm and damp because if you think about ginger it's a tropical plant so you need to think about how it would grow in its natural environment and how you're trying to recreate that in your own home so a kitchen is great constant heat is also good so if you haven't got a warm kitchen so kind of near a boiler or something like that and to give it an extra bit of oomph you could either stick the little plastic punnet in a freezer bag or you could get a lid that goes over that maybe comes with the fruit punnet but something just kind of lock in the moisture create some form of humidity and then just leave it just make sure it doesn't dry out so depending on how warm your room is. So here in my kitchen, it's quite hot. So about every two to three days, I was adding a bit more water, was keeping that soil moist as opposed to waterlogged or too dry. And you can just feel that with your fingers. And then after about maybe two and a half weeks, I could see a little tiny green shoot appear where the eye was, one of the eyes. And that's so exciting because it means it's on its way. And then about four weeks later, I had quite a good root system. And the great thing about using the supermarket punnet is that it's completely see-through. So I could see the root forming at the bottom. So I thought, aha, it's time to, to transplant it. Because actually ginger does need a deep-ish pot or a deep pot. And, um, and that's a good time when I know I can see there's a good root, I can transplant it to a deep pot. And the next pot I move it to is where it's going to stay. So I moved it like that. Now... You can treat your ginger as a house plant. It is also no, well, grown as a house plant, but we're using it for its root. So if we get a hot summer or some maybe a sort of June and July or August are hot, then it's okay to put it outside. 
but word of caution, I keep mine in the greenhouse or you could keep it on the kitchen floor with a nice base that it catches the water spill, but it needs that constant warmth again. It won't cope with cold nights and just keep watering it. And these little green shoots will grow up to very tall, sort of palm-like leaves. I mean, the one that I started growing about eight weeks ago is now about three foot tall, one of the shoots. So I'll, I'll send a picture so I can put, you can have a look at it um, on Instagram later. But um, it's fascinating. And so there I just leave it and it will be taken to the greenhouse and I'll just keep watering it and looking after it and lots more shoots will come up. And it's actually quite an attractive house plant. And then about the autumn time, it suddenly starts looking a bit kind of maybe brownie around the edge of the leaves. And that's its time for me to harvest the root. So what I do is a bit of a cheat is that I slice off a bit of the rhizome. I push away the soil, slice a bit of the rhizome, harvest a bit and leave the plant growing. Although it doesn't really grow very much, it becomes quite dormant in the winter even though I will then bring it in October into the kitchen, it is quite quiet because it just doesn't have the long daylight hours and is much natural warmth and daylight. So, um, but what you could do is you could harvest the whole thing and you could start again if you wanted. So you would half cut off the stems and the leaves, harvest the rhizome. And what I do with the roots and the rhizome is that I don't keep it in the fridge, I don't keep it in the fruit bowl, I actually stick them straight in the freezer. And any ginger, even if I've bought ginger and I'm not going to grow from it, I always put ginger in the freezer. It's much easier to cook with, I grate the whole thing, the skin is full of nutrition as well and it just disintegrates into your cooking it's brilliant I think my root I bought about eight weeks ago was about 49p from a supermarket and the enjoyment I'm going to get from that 49p is second to none it's looking great oh the other thing to bear in mind is that I don't buy organic ginger I'm actually not sure if my supermarket sells organic but that's another good reason for keeping it in a pot because I don't really know where that ginger's come from could it be harboring a disease or a virus I don't know so by keeping it contained in the pot it's not going to spread if it is carrying something that's really interesting I mean I think ginger is the perfect illustration of our partnership isn't it because you grow ginger to eat it and I grow ginger because I love the flowers and the foliage and I grow (laughs) ornamental gingers in my garden I've got about 20 different varieties and I have to say I have never attempted to eat any of them because culinary ginger (laughs) is a little bit different from the ornamental gingers which is helpful to make that distinction and you're right because your ginger is far more tropical whereas a lot of the ornamental gingers are subtropical or from areas that are a little bit cooler like the Himalayas so they don't need quite as much heat And you're absolutely right as well about planting the rhizome on the surface. And this is a great uh, example as well of you being an instinctive gardener because you feel that that's right. But it is actually right because uh, naturally gingers will grow very close to the surface. And it's quite important that they stay there because if you cover them up, they do risk going rotten that's not how they grow in nature so they're not used to being covered in a lot of soil so so yes that's brilliant you're doing you're doing it right of of course you're doing it right is there any (laughs) other part of the your ginger plant that you can eat or is it just the rhizome yes brilliant question i eat the whole thing so the stems the leaves they are so gorgeously scented with ginger so i just tie them in a little knot and i shove them into whatever i'm cooking if i'm doing a curry or 
uh, pasta or whatever I'm doing with it, it, it it's delicious, it's amazing. So there is no waste, which is good. Although I don't freeze the leaves and stems. I'm actually not sure what they'd be like. So I just cut them off and mm. use them. I put them in the fridge and store them and then use them later. But they are, everything has a scent and it's all edible. It's a really fun thing to yes. do. And also it's fun with children as well. I think ginger is one of the most gloriously scented plants all over, really. The ornamental ones, the stems snap off in the cold weather. So as soon as it gets to November, December, they naturally come away from the root. And the smell as you go around picking them up is just amazing. It's very light and perfumed. It's absolutely lovely. Anyway, we both love ginger. (laughs) Yes. But I was going to ask you, so what happens to your ornamental ones in the winter? I know you live in a very mild climate, but do they? where do they stay? I put them in the workshop. So I take them out of the garden. They're all planted in pots. So I put them in the workshop. They don't need any light and they mustn't have any water over winter. And right now, which is very end of April, they are starting to produce shoots, um, and I will bring them outside before those shoots get too long and they will grow away again. But it's it's a very okay. similar principle to your edible ginger. Yeah, fascinating. Maybe we should do a swap. Yes, let's do that. Yeah, okay. Uh, right, so that's, that's all about me and my thrifty growing project. But Dan, another tempting product from you, please. So what are you going to tell us about this time from your array of goodies? <laughs> so I'm going to talk about my new uh, signature Dutch trowel, which I've got here. I'm going to do my very best to um, describe it to you, but probably the easiest way is to say that this trowel or one like it, is Monty Don's favourite tool. So it's very different to a normal traditional trowel because it has a completely flat blade and a much longer handle. And instead of using it as the sort of scooping action like we would use a trowel, you use it as a sort of plunge and lever action. So you plunge the blade into the ground and you pull the handle towards you as if it was a lever. And what that does is it creates a little planting pocket behind it for you to pop a bulb or a young plant into. And that action is actually, for some people, a lot easier to do than a sort of sideways scoop. And you've also got the the slightly longer handle, which gives you more leverage and therefore a little bit more power. And these trowels, although they've recently become a lot more popular, have been around for a very long time. And they're used and that they were invented for and they're still used for planting bulbs in gardens like Kuchenhof in the Netherlands because you can work across the ground very very quickly plunging the trowel in pulling it towards you popping something in and you can just work along the ground very very quickly and get lots done in a very short space of time. So It's very different in use to a normal trowel, but a really handy thing to have around. It's got a very nice sharp edge on it, which is great if you've got a dense soil like clay. I've had great feedback from customers who've bought these to say they had their doubts about whether it would get through their particularly thick and heavy soil and it's worked to treat. So that's very pleasing to hear. And um, yeah, it's just a very strong construction, so this is never going to bend. And it's got a lovely ash handle, which is very tactile. Um, And I just love it. I think it's something a little bit different. Have you ever tried using one of these, Julia? 
No, and because I garden on heavy clay, I think there's going to be an order pinging through later on tonight. But it is the most beautiful. I don't often find tools attractive, but it's the most beautiful tool because it's heart-shaped really, isn't it? That's how I'd describe it. It's very lovely. It, it's, it looks very tactile. I love the fact it's got the long handle as well. Um, do they all come with long handles? Can some be longer or shorter? Or... Yes, I think there are shorter ones. I think the benefit of the longer handle is it just gives you that little bit of extra power. Um, and for some people as well, it may stop them needing to bend down quite as much with it. It's it's definitely not a long handle, but I think it just no. helps give you that give you that action better. Okay, it's good. And does it require kind of you know with sort of garden shears they often sort of require sharpening and oiling and stuff so does it need any maintenance or do you think I can treat it like my normal bog standard trowel yes I mean it it is the same as any other tool very important to store it away dry so if you've been gardening in the wet so I used this to plant my potatoes out over the weekend and it was sodden so really important for the wood and the metal part that you dry it off once it's completely dry, just brush any sort of residual soil off. And then if you've got the time and the energy, then a little bit of oil on it is always very helpful. Um, it just okay. helps to keep the metal good. And it has got an edge that you can sharpen, but it's not going to be something you need to sharpen like a pair of secateurs very often. That's okay. just an occasional thing to maintain its, um, its lovely edge. Okay, perfect. And is it so you can plant with it? You did your potatoes, you can plant tulips, um, seedlings, you do seedlings? Yes, definitely good big? for planting out at this time of year. So when you've got okay. your young vegetable plants and flower plants, it's absolutely perfect for doing that. Okay, brilliant. Oh, well, it's a beautiful thing to have. So I'm going to add that to my to my tools. I'll probably never use it because <laughs> it looks you. so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> People always say that, but I say you must use your tools. But thank you, that's <laughs> kind. Now, every episode, I choose my pick of the bunch while Julia shares her top of the crops. What taste bud tingling crop are you going to encourage us to grow and eat this time? <laughs> A tongue twisting, tasty crop, Dan. Wow. Um, tasty tomatoes, actually, because tomatoes are hugely popular, aren't they, with all of us, even sort of vegetable gardeners that are not experienced. Most people have tried, hopefully, to grow a tomato. And with the cost of living crisis, the shelves could be continuing to be a bit bare. So nothing better than growing your own tomato. Now it's the sort of last little window if you're going to sow them from seed, but worry not because there are plenty of seedlings that you can pick up in a garden centre. They're actually not that expensive. The price of tomatoes are quite a lot in the supermarket now. So I started mine early because if you grow from seed, you need a long time for the root to develop and the plant to grow. But this has already been done for you if you pick up a seedling. And it's very good to, um, to work out which varieties or which ones you're going to pick up so do you like a cherry tomato a big fat tomato do you like a mid-sized one there are loads to choose from I personally choose red green and yellow traffic light system and I have a variety of cherry heritage um, large ones and sort of normal size ones and a plum tomato I grow quite a lot actually but they're fun. So the other way is that sometimes uh, if you buy seeds, you don't get many seeds in a seed packet, but it is actually very easy to grow a tomato from a bought tomato that you slice in half and bury. So it's another thrifty project. But it just that proves to you how easy it is to raise a seedling from a tomato seed. And uh, I actually grow mine 
only in the greenhouse, different reasons which I'll come on to, but you could obviously grow them outside. Tomatoes, if you want to sort of get fruit in the summer, you have to have a wing and a prayer that it's going to be a really hot summer because they are sunshine dependent. And if you buy your seedlings now, or sow your seed now, you should be in a good chance with getting some tomatoes around August time. But don't think, gosh, where are my tomatoes? It's June because they take a while to produce their fruit. So growing outside, you choose a sunny location, you dig a deep hole, um, add some well-rotted manure um, or bone meal and pop the tomatoes in. I bury quite deeply, um, but often because my seedling's a little bit leggy, but you can bury a tomato deeply because stems are very hairy and all those hairs have the ability to grow into a root and it just gives your tomato a better chance of having a stronger root, so that's a good thing. Once you've planted them outside, you could add some straw or a mulch to retain the moisture because they are hungry plants. My technique is to buy grow bags and I place the grow bags on the raised bed in my greenhouse. I pierce holes with the cane I'm going to tie my tomatoes to so that there's room for the root to go through the grow bag because grow bags are shallow and into the raised bed. Most people make the mistake of buying their grow bags, which as we know are shallow. They don't puff them up, which you're meant to do. And then they pull out their tomatoes and wonder why their tomatoes keel over, the root comes out of the top and they don't have much fruit. And that's the reason, because tomatoes need a deep root. So I always tell people that come on my workshops, buy the grow bags, do what I do, or tip the contents into deep pots because the grow bags are rammed full of the nutrients that tomatoes need to start off. Very hungry plants. It's also good to have a good practice about how you grow your tomatoes. So you need to let air circulate as the tomatoes get taller. So it's good to remove lower leaves if you're growing a cordon tomato. Um, there is, I assume most of you have heard about blight, but this is very good practice to trying to avoid blight. Now, blight is a fungus that is windborne. So if you grow them outside, you're always more susceptible to getting blight. But if you remove the leaves and you try not to get water on the foliage or the stem, you're giving yourself a better chance to avoid it. Uh, inside for me I have to be very careful there's no water splash on the foliage and the stems when I'm watering which is tricky because I cram them in they're like sardines and if you do get blight uh, it's quite obvious it gets the leaves start going brown they start curl and crinkle up and then you get brown on the stem and the fruit starts rotting you would need to remove the whole plant and the fruit and everything and you also need to be careful with the compost it's growing in you can't reuse it crop rotation might also help watering so tomatoes require a lot of water outside maybe twice or three times a week Dan you might correct me on this later because I know you grow them outside um, but I do mine in the summer months every day and when it's really hot sometimes twice a day you never should let your tomatoes um, dry out also you need to start feeding them so as they get taller and the fruit is setting then it's a really good idea to start. You can buy a tomato feed, you can use liquid seaweed, something with high potash is a very good idea. Every couple of weeks would be my advice to feed them. My favourite varieties, I'll just tell you because I sort of feel they're tried and tested, I, the plum tomato I grow is San Mazzano, which is superb, you get lots of tomatoes, because that's the key, if you're going to grow tomatoes, you want lots of fruit. I grow black cherry, sometimes it can be found under the name of black opal. It's a really good cherry coloured tomato and it's prolific. Green zebra, it's green and stripy when it's mature, it's delicious, it's full of flavour, that's a heritage variety. Yellow submarine is a bit like growing pear drops, again loads of them so it's good value. 
Barry's Crazy Cherry is another little tiny cherry, smaller than Yellow Submarine, but it's just fun to grow and it looks like a bunch of grapes. Black Russian is a lovely old variety and it is sort of this deep cherry, large tomato. And my new favourite is Theo de Rio Gordo, which is a huge sort of Spanish, like a big Marmande one. And it that's just fun to grow. So Dan, I know you grow them outside. I don't know if you're as particular over your varieties as I am or whether you just want mass. So what do you do? <laughs> well, my mouth is absolutely watering after your description. I cannot fault your tips. So I've got very little left to say. But yes, we grow our tomatoes outside on our allotment because we don't have very much space in our greenhouse. And it is a slightly different ball game to growing them in the greenhouse. You want to try and grow varieties that are a tiny bit hardier and more resilient. And you, they need, obviously, really good support because if they're in a windy location and they grow tall, you need to make sure that they don't blow over. But they're a breeze to grow outside so long as you've got the right varieties. And as you say, you just have to be that little bit more vigilant about things like blight. If you grow on an allotment as we do, then it's not just your blight you need to worry about. It's whether other people have got blight on theirs. And we had a year, a couple of years ago, where... Out of the 140-odd plots on our allotments, everybody got it because the wind blows it from one plant to the other and uh, you can't stop it. There's nothing you can do about it. But but the main thing is to stop water splashing up off the ground onto the leaves, which you explained so beautifully. I am not as particular about my tomato varieties as my partner is and it's his responsibility to choose the varieties every year. The only one I insist on through just a genuine love of it and also for nostalgia is Gardener's Delight. It's boring, I know, but it's the ultimate cherry (laughs) tomato. Very easy to grow. You never fail with it. It germinates well. It fruits well. And so if you're going to take a few risks with some other varieties you're not familiar with grow some gardeners delight and you'll at least have that as insurance that's good advice dan yes no that's good and actually i do remember you want to try growing barry as well don't you because he's a fun tomato to grow so i'm going to save I one i do for you. i love the sound of barry <laughs> yeah he's fun so dan tomatoes done which is hopefully you're all salivating over the tomatoes we're going to be growing but dan What is your chosen pick of the bunch this time? So it's a very simple one and one that people local to me here in Broadstairs will appreciate, but it is the humble wallflower. I have a little vase of them here and I'm just breathing in that beautiful scent, which I spent a few minutes earlier trying to actually describe. There is a definite scent of honey about it, but there's also a little bit of iris, if anybody's familiar with that scent. So they smell a little bit like bearded irises. It's a sort of powdery honey scent, but like so many fragrances, we don't really think about what it smells like. We just go, oh, that's hyacinth, or oh, that's wallflower. But whenever I smell wallflowers, I am reminded of spring and I really love them. They grow in abundance here in Thanet, which is a chalky outcrop on the east coast of England. And the reason they grow so well here is because they love the high pH. So anything from seven to nine, which is highly alkaline, they absolutely love that. 
and they also love to grow in walls, hence wallflower. It's not because they're shy flowers, it's because they like growing on vertical surfaces where the roots can get in between the rocks and they just cling on for dear life and enjoy that lovely alkaline sort of chalky soil. What that tells you about the wallflower, of course, is that it is incredibly hardy and resilient and good at growing in exposed places. And I looked around today and it literally clothes the cliffs in a cloth of gold, which is actually the name of a wallflower variety as well. And absolutely beautiful for weeks on end here. They fill the air with scent along with stocks which is another relative of the wallflower which also flowers at this time of year and is sort of more clovey scented but um, both of them are brassicas at heart and, and that translates then to the fact that in this area cabbages and cauliflowers are also a popular crop because they love the soil. I love wallflowers because they are one of those flowers that is never wishy-washy. So most of the wallflowers in this area are golden yellow, a rather brassy golden yellow, which will no doubt make some very sophisticated gardeners' eyes bleed, but I like it. <laughs> you get the odd sort of sulphur yellow one, and then occasionally a sort of broken orange, a sort of terracotta orange with a bit of yellow. But they're always in that colour spectrum, the ones that have gone wild. I don't believe that they are a native uh, flower of the UK. I think they're just something that's escaped from gardens and done rather well. But we're not sorry about that because they are so lovely. They are a flower that if you want to grow them in your garden you can sow seed at the end of May or in early June and they will make nice plants which you can move into a permanent position in autumn and of course the classic combination is to grow wallflowers with tulips and that's because they're good planted out at a pretty similar time but also the wallflower creates a carpet of flowers which hides the rather leggy stems of the tulip. But I would say don't just use them for that because as there is great evidence here you can use wallflowers in things like a rockery or a rock garden to create some colour. They love that uh, aspect. And also if you have herbaceous borders that are looking a bit bare at this time of year a few clumps of wallflowers in there will really brighten it up. The colours come in all shades from a very very deep uh, reddy colour which I know is a favourite of yours and all yes. the way through to some pinks and sulphur yellows but they're never ever washed out or dull they're always good strong colours. My favourite varieties are things like Fire King, Vulcan which is one of the really deep red ones and Cloth of Gold which is good old brassy yellow and then you can get some special mixtures that have been put together. Different seed companies have different ones. But Cottage Fragrance is good for obvious reasons, very scented. And then Persian Carpet claims to contain all the colours of a beautiful ornamental rug. So that's what I would recommend. But if you're feeling like growing some wallflowers after that, then you've got plenty of time to get some seed just plant them at the end of May and you'll have a beautiful scented carpet of flowers at the beginning of next year.
Oh, how lovely. Thank you, Dan. I'm in that scent. I, I can just almost smell the scent. I mean, I do grow them, but I don't grow many. And I do only grow that deep, velvety, burgundy red colour, which is presumably a cultivated one. Um, but I had no idea they're a member of the Brassica family. So do you think I could eat them? Would they be edible if I wanted to put them on a cake or something? Do we know the answer to that? They might be. I, I think that would be quite interesting to find out. Of course, they could have a rather mustardy or brassicary flavour to them. I'm going to try one once we've finished podcasting. This may okay. well be our last ever episode. <laughs> I don't hear from you. Um, so it's been nice been nice talking to you all. <laughs> but um, but I think, it, I think if you look at the wallflower flower very closely, Julia, you can see that they bear quite a resemblance to the flowers of something like kale. Um, yes. And, so, so, and, and mustard when it goes to seed. So you can see yeah. the family resemblance. The other way to tell that they're related is if you leave them in water for too long, they go very pongy like cabbage. And all oh, of the brassica family, if you cut them and put them in water, make the water extremely smelly. Okay. Well, I mean, I love them. I've got a little tiny vase next to the bed with it's got um, the the deep red ones in and the scent. It's like a very, I guess, a honeyed blossom smell. It is. It, there's nothing mm. like it. It's an old fashioned scent, yeah, actually. It is. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Well, hopefully we'll all be inspired to grow wallflowers, which pay, maybe people have overlooked before. I hope so. So we round off every episode with a rundown of the jobs you could be doing in your garden over the next fortnight. And this time it's Julia's turn to share her wisdom with us. So quite a few jobs to be done. I've whittled them down. First one is it's time to earth up your potatoes if you see new shoots poking through. And I certainly did when I came back from my four day break. Very exciting to see new shoots, but I need to cover them over very quickly to protect them from frost. Continue hardening off plants and if your sweet peas that we talked about being hardened off last time, if they're still okay, then I would suggest you plant them out now. Pumpkins, sweet corn, courgettes and French beans you can start to sow now if you haven't done the sweet corn already or the courgettes. Sunflowers too. Um, It's good to get your Forsythia, Ribes and any other evergreens pruned. Now is a very good time for that. Remember, don't clear away any daffodil foliage as Dan told us last time. Repot houseplants and do a top dressing of compost. Feed lawns with a nitrogen-rich feed. Continue sowing tender herbs, so for example, basil, coriander, dill. Check your lilies for lily beetles. If you don't know or not familiar with a lily beetle, it is a bright red beetle. And let me tell you, they're tricky little blighters to catch, but you need to. Up your game of slug and snail protection, particularly as it seems to be raining every single day here in Sussex. And be on weather watch because apples haven't blossomed yet, or some have, depending where you are, but some haven't. You'll need to protect your blossom from frost and particularly cherry trees I've got this rather sort of ingenious invention which is made by someone called cherry aid fruit nets and they're basically sleeves the best description is they're rather like those holders for carrier bags that you could hang on the back of a door and you tie them at the top and the bottom and they're brilliant you can put them over one branch at a time and they protect the cherries from fruit so it'd be a good idea to put that on that's my succinct roundup Dan <laughs> That was very succinct. You did well there. But um, yes, we should all be on the lookout for those pests. And as you say, lily beetles have this uh, very clever way of just falling 
to the ground when you approach them. So you have to be very, very stealthy because they're very visible when they're bright red and on a leaf. But when they fall to the ground, they go upside down. So you can only see their black tummies. Uh, probably that's a completely incorrect description of them, but uh, they're little <laughs> black tummies and you can't see them. And then of course they live to uh, munch through uh, some more lily leaves and leave this horrible black gunge on your lilies, which is a telltale sign yeah. that you've got them. And we've already got lots of dahlias coming through on the allotment. We leave ours in the ground through laziness rather than anything else. And they are coming through quite early this year. So I'm having a go with some wool slug pellets for the first time. And I'm going to see if they work. So peat free and also slug pellet free year for me this year. Before we go, we'd like to share what we'll be up to between now and the next episode. I'm going to be at the wonderful Saltwood Castle on Saturday, April the 29th, and then the next day at Hatfield House, both for plant fairs and open gardens. So do come along and see me at one of those two. And then over the coronation weekend, I'm going to be at Board Hill, which is not so far away from Julia and Parker's Patch. And I'm going to be catching up with Julia in her garden to discuss the next few episodes and create some exciting new content. When I get the bank holidays, I'm going to fully embrace them and actually spend that time on my garden and on my allotment and hopefully the sun will shine. What are you going to be up to, Julia? Sounds lovely, Dan. Well, I, on the bank holiday weekend coming up on the 1st of May, I'm going to be at One Garden in Brighton, uh, 2 until 3.30, doing book signing, so signing copies of The Little Girl's Cookbook. It's National Gardening Week, and One Garden, which is linked in with Plumpton Agricultural College, are running loads of free events to celebrate this. So come along. It's open for everyone. It's the most amazing walled garden that's been restored by Dominic Cole, who worked on the Eden Project, and it's within Stanmer Park, if you don't know it, if you're local to Brighton. I'm also looking forward to your visit, Dan, which is is exciting. And um, you're going to bring some new products I can look at as well. And then, of course, it is the coronation of King Charles III. We in our village are having a banquet on the Friday night. And um, obviously it's dressing up. And so my token's going to be a floral crown, red, white and blue, foraged from the garden, naturally. And then Alatex, our sponsor, are also going to be appearing at a couple of fairs. So they're going to be at the Badminton Horse Trials on the 4th to 8th of May and also at the RHS Malvern Spring Festival on the 11th to 14th of May. And they will have their experts on hand to answer any questions and offer tailored advice to you. So that's all for this episode. So it just remains for me to say goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, why not follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out? Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at dancoopergarden.com, at parkers underscore patch, and at Two Good Gardeners, or visit our website. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. 
If you've got questions for either of us, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the next time, happy gardening!